All right. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Well, hey, it's, it's good to be here with you all. I can feel kind of like, hey, that's not Chris. He's shorter and a different looking person. Okay, well, um, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with you all this morning. And um, if you have a Bible or your Fiddle Church app open, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 this morning. Uh, Galatians 2, 17 through 21. And uh, if you need to send a reminder, that's uh, right between First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians in the New Testament. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to uh, just do a quick couple things. Uh, first of all, hello to Grand Avenue. Uh, good to have you all uh, joining us uh, just around the corner. It's, it's still crazy that we're doing this, and I'm still not sure how this is happening, but uh, I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us um, in service at 9 a.m. this morning. And then secondly, uh, just a, a quick announcement, just something to congratulate uh, Monica and Grant Reynolds. They're part of our church. They had their, their twin babies uh, on Friday. Um, and so some of you may know them. Um, they're involved in the worship team, and it's just great. Uh, Bennett Stephen and Elliot Julius. And so uh, we're born on Friday. They're still um, in the hospital, just recovering and stuff. I just want to say congratulations to them. And also let, letting you know, uh, this is something we're actually going to start doing uh, as a church. And so if any of you have any kind of special occasions, celebrations, new babies, marriages, things like that, let us know. Um, let the church office know. Let us know via social media. We'd love to be able to celebrate that somehow on a Sunday morning and just uh, just throw that out there and, and uh, let the church know, okay? All right, well, Galatians 2, and we are in the series um, called Gospel Rooted Living, and we are, are about four or five weeks in right now, and it's been just awesome to be able to walk through the book of Galatians and see how the gospel is just all over uh, this, this book. It's all over the Bible because that's the Bible, but, but particularly this series, it just seems like every week it points back to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as we approach this passage this morning, Galatians 2, verses 17 to 21, um, I want to let you know there is a a, a verse tucked in the middle of this, Galatians 2, 20, that many many of you know. Many of you maybe even know by heart. uh, Maybe you know songs that have this verse in it. And we'll get there, and we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about Galatians 2, 20. But it's really important that as we approach that verse, um, talking about how we now live in Christ, and Christ lives in us, that we understand the context of how we got here, okay? So I want to just do a quick review, and then we will get to Galatians 2.20 and spend some time there, okay? So, so far in Galatians chapter 2, here's what we've kind of looked at. There has been this conflict between Peter and Paul, two of the most kind of stubborn guys in the New Testament, two of the most stubborn leaders, two of the greatest leaders, and they are butting heads. They, are, they have this issue, and it really comes down to Peter's association and his kind of perspective when it comes to this group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, they also call themselves the Circumcision Party, which is not a party I'd want to go to. But it's, it's uh, this group that they associate. And the Judaizers, they say that, look, it's Jesus, it's the grace of God, but it's also plus all this other stuff. You have to follow these laws. You have to follow these rules. You have to get circumcised if you're not. You have to eat this certain way and, and make sure that you are on up and up when it comes to these laws and rules. And so the Judaizers, they had kind of this, this perspective of, of difficult trying to understand Paul's perspective. It was difficult to get what Paul was getting at. And so they had this approach in terms of the law and grace. And so Peter is sitting and he's eating with all these Gentiles, eating just good food, like bacon-wrapped shrimp and all these things that, as a good Jew, you're not supposed to eat. And so he's eating this food, and the Judaizers show up, and he starts to back off from the table, and he starts to kind of retreat a little bit. And by implication, Peter is 
going back to this old kind of works-based righteousness of Jesus plus the law. And in that process, Paul just is like, Peter, what are you doing? This is completely, this isn't the gospel. And as we know from the last five weeks of our time in Galatians, anything that adds to Jesus in terms of the good news of Jesus is a false gospel. And so Paul just flat calls him out on it and says, this is not the way we're supposed to be living. And this is a, a bit of a conversation between two guys, a group, and Barnabas gets thrown in as well. But this is also just kind of indicative of what's happening in the early church at this time. And just kind of realize this. This is a big change, right? Like when Jesus came and he set up this new covenant law, this was a huge change for the early church. This wasn't just a, a beef that Peter and Paul and, and the Judaizers had. This was a huge change that spanned you know, centuries and centuries of tradition, back to when the old covenant was in place where they had holy days and animals were sacrificed and you went to temple to get things done and make sure that your standing was right before the Lord. And so like any, any change, change is difficult, right? Like think about your own life. Change is hard. And it takes a while for people to kind of get on board with this. And this is a little bit of where we're at. This is where we're seeing the, these, these folks having this difficulty this, with this transition in the church. So as we approach verse 17 and look at what it has to say here, this is kind of the context in which Paul's talking. Paul is now making the case for justification. And he's saying, look, it doesn't, you don't have to add anything to Jesus in order to be saved. It's just Jesus. He's the one who justifies you. So verse 17, our first verse, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So let's talk about this for a second. What, it's, what's difficult about verse 17 a little bit is there's a, there may have been a little bit of a switch here in the audience that Paul's talking to. Because obviously we know that Galatians is written to the church, but in this verse, there seems to be kind of an aside where Paul steps aside and he starts to address this other group of people who are um, kind of have a problem with, with Paul and his beliefs. There's this group that's out there that's like, Paul, you've gone too far with this whole like faith and grace stuff. It's too much. There has to be some structure in place. And so in verse 17, he's actually addressing this group. He's dealing with this opposition. And so the key thing I want us to see in verse 17 is the word right in the middle, sinners. Okay, let me just underline that. He says, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So what I want us to see, though, is that that word sinners is actually pointing back to verse 15. So look up to verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So this, in verse 15, it's talking about this, this idea that there were, there were Jews who were the promised people of, of God, and there were Gentiles, those who, are, those who are outside of the promises of God. And when he brings this up in verse 17, and Paul kind of doubles down, and he says, look, we too are found to be sinners, Paul is, in a way, is leveling the playing field and saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, he'll go on and say later on Galatians, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, we all need Christ. We are all sinners. We are all sinners, and so this applies to us all. So what about this last part, though, in verse 17? Is Christ then a servant of sin? So I think what Paul's doing here is he's reminding, look, we are the ones who got ourselves into this mess, into this tension, into this fight. 
And he's saying, look, in terms of sin, Christ isn't to blame for this disruption, for this conflict that we have. It's, it's you, Peter, and, and the Judaizers who brought this false gospel into the picture. It's not, it's not on Christ. This, this, uh, this argument has nothing to do with the, the, the truth of Jesus. There's a conflict in the church, and so Paul asks this rhetorical question. So let's, we, we see this happening and fleshed out more in verses 18 and 19. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So what was torn down in verse 18? The law was torn down. And Paul says, look, if, if, if you try and rebuild the law, then that's not on Jesus. That's on you. Like the law is already, it's, it's put away with. Why would you try to rebuild something that God himself tore down? And he says, look, he kind of even uses this, this imagery. I mean, some of you remember when Jesus died on the cross, that God tore the temple curtain from top down. And he says, why would you try to resell that? Uh, I've already paid, Jesus has already paid the price. And, and, and Paul goes on and says, look, I've actually tried it. I was, I was, I was the top dog of all Jews. I, I tried and, and worked the law, but at the end of the day, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. So this is a little bit of the context in which we find ourselves in terms of this discussion. There's this kind of back and forth between Paul and Peter and these issues. And so now I want to get to kind of our main text here in Galatians 2.20. Because Paul turns and he says, look, it's kind of like this. And he writes this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Man, what a beautiful verse. And some of us may know that verse. Some of you may have that on a coffee cup somewhere at home, on a t-shirt. I've heard people kind of refer to this as a coffee cup verse because you kind of just have that verse around and it's like, it's a great verse. And like, well, man, what is that, what is that verse? You kind of even say it out loud. But what, is, what does it mean? Um, I'm not so sure because we've been around these things so long and so often we've heard these verses so, so much that sometimes it's a little bit hard to kind of nail down exactly what he's talking about here, even in a verse as famous as Galatians 2.20. So what does this actually mean? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So let me just be vulnerable with you for a minute and kind of share what I think it's getting at here. Um, so I've, I've lived in this area my whole life, um, Southern California, this kind of pocket of the L.A. basin. Uh, grew up in uh, Chino Hills and Pomona. Uh, went to high school in Pasadena. Went locally to college here at APU nearby. And so I have lived in this area. I think the farthest I've ever ventured out is Temecula. All right, lived there for a couple years. And uh, I know, really exotic. But this is kind of the area that I've lived in in my, my whole life. And so there's a number of benefits to that, right? So uh, since I've lived in this area, I can kind of tell you where to find a decent burrito, okay? That's like pretty easy. I can kind of tell you how to, I can tell you how to get from point A to point B in a very efficient way because I've lived in this area my whole life. I know how the traffic works. I know kind of the shortcuts and the fastest way to get around a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to living in this area. I've kind of grown up with some friends, people that I've seen all my life, enjoyed doing life with, with folks over a long term. Now, there's a couple of things, though, that are also not so great about living in the same area. Um, 
For example, I don't have to go very far, go very long, without being reminded of my sinful past. Right? Like, since I, I've, I've lived here. I, I've lived it all here. So, so I don't have to go very far. I don't have to go and meet very many people before I actually bump into somebody. I, I, I'm walking around or I'm down at a coffee shop and I bump into a college friend. And I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And I start talking to him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that night. That wasn't so good. And I remember, I recall that. And there's that regret. I, I, I drive around, and there's a, there's a parking lot near the area which I grew up in. And I, I remember taking a former girlfriend there and the sin that occurred there, right? Just purely just sexual lines that were crossed. And, and I, I just, I remember that. And it's easy to recall because I've lived here all my life. And so this past week, I'm getting ready for this sermon. And um, I, I draw my kids off, and my parents in Chino Hills, and I, I have my kids there, and so I go to a local coffee shop. I start working on my sermon, and I kind of, in that same process, I actually drove by this parking lot. I drove by this area. and remind, Have you guys ever been there before where you can kind of just drive by an area, and you can almost be sick to your stomach about what happened there? Or you see an old house, and you remember what happened to that house, and this is how it was. I was just like, man, this is, this is weird. This is not good. And... Um, it's just easy to kind of recall and think about that past shame. Maybe it's the words you used. Maybe it's how you treated somebody, how you took advantage of somebody. And it's simply just a, kind of a, a landmark driving by somewhere, talking to somebody, and that all comes up to the surface. And so I am getting ready to preach this sermon on Monday, and I have nothing but condemnation and guilt in my ear. Right? Like, you're going to preach this? Like, who are you to say these things, right? Um, they're going to listen to you. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right. I've had this conversation with myself, and I'm like, absolutely, I, I, you're, you're right. I shouldn't be preaching these things. And I'm, I'm starting to get discouraged, and I start to kind of second-guess some of the things that I'm writing down here and my prep, and then I, I read this verse, Galatians 2.20. And I realized that because of Galatians 2.20, that that Stephen Coppenrath died, right? Like, he's dead. He was crucified with Christ on that cross, and it's no longer I who live, my old, old man, my old self, my former sinful self who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. This is what justification looks like with flesh on. This is what justification looks like in terms of being able to get rid of those old feelings of guilt and shame and remorse and realizing I am now new. I now live a new life. I mean, isn't that good news? This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ that he would come and he would send his son so that I might live again. There is so much fruit from justification. Realizing that man, I don't have to live in my former sin, my former shame any longer. And as I read that verse, I realize there's just so much that flushes out. And so I want to talk to us this morning about the results of justification in our life. The fruit of it. Uh, in, in many ways, what it means now in Galatians 2.20 when it says, the life I now live. What does this life that I now live look like? So a couple of points. Two things I just want to share with us this morning as we look at 
this verse in depth, all right? The first thing is this, the result of justification. Christ gives us a new identity. That's the first thing I want us to see. Christ gives us a new identity. He says, I have crucified the Christ. It's no longer I who live. I don't even live any longer. Like, I'm not the same person. I have a new life. I've been given a new identity. All those things about me in the past aren't true anymore. That's not even the same person. I've been given a new identity. Now, Paul has been talking about this um, in many ways throughout his, his letters to the church. But Galatians 2.20 is perhaps the most concise thing we've ever seen in terms of this picture of what it means to have a new identity. And it's, it's amazing. And so in Galatians 6, he even boasts in the cross because the cross is the place in which that identity is really made seen. That I died just like Jesus on the cross. And so in Galatians 6, Paul boasts in the cross. He says, man, I've been crucified in Galatians 2.20. And so it's, that's just weird to boast in an instrument of torture. But this is what he does. He says, I love the cross for what it represents. I love it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, says this. Should be on the screen. We have that one? Oh, there it is. Behind me. For our sake he made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is something that I want us to see here in terms of what we get from justification. Martin Luther talks about this in terms of this great exchange that happens. Right? Some of you may know, may know about this, that we would give God our sin, our shame, our regret, our remorse, and we would receive, according to 2 Corinthians, the righteousness of God. That he would give that to us. Now, I want to just throw this in as well. It's easy to kind of think about the bad stuff that we give to Jesus and he gives back his righteousness to us, but it's also the good things, right? Like, so it's our talents, our abilities, our, the things that we're proud of. We give those to Jesus as well, and he gives us his righteousness because he says, look, even on your best day, even on your most proud moment, you are still not good enough to make it. And he says, so, so give me the good and the bad, and I want to give you my righteousness. And this is part of the freedom that we experience in this new identity in Christ. This life that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So let's talk about this identity idea for just a second, because does this mean that I don't have an identity of my own? Does this mean that like, I, I kind of just have lost my sense of Stephen and who I am and what I do? Well, kind of. A little bit, and that should be okay because I, I want us to think about an example. And this is an uh, example that is really, it'll break down after a minute if you think about it, but, but think about your best friend, all right? So students, or if you're in here, um, like adults, you know, folks who, whoever your best friend is, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's somebody you've lived life with a long time, and isn't it true that after a while, after being around your best friend for a while, you can kind of tell how they're going to respond to things, right? Like, you can kind of know what they're going to say, how they think, what they prefer, what kind of movies they like, what kind of life that, what kind of things that they enjoy in life. Um, I, I can say with pretty, pretty much certainty that I know what Katie's going to order at a restaurant um, after being together for almost, you know, 18 years or so. I know that she's going to want iced tea, right? I mean, I've never, ever seen her order a Diet Coke. I just haven't. She orders iced tea. 
Uh, I, I know within probably two or three kinds of foods what kind of food she'll order. Uh, I've, I've heard that as older folks kind of age together in marriage that they start to look like each other, which is kind of scary, right? Um, <laughs> And it kind of just happens, like these mannerisms kind of rub off. Now, this is what I'm talking about in terms of this identity piece that we shouldn't be scared about. This doesn't mean that I lose who I am, I lose myself, and it's like, oh, man, I just, I, compl- I don't even know who I am anymore, right? Because God is now my identity, I guess. No, 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 it's a beautiful thing because it's based off of a relationship with God over time in our lifetime. And after a while, we start to think like God. We start to love the things that God loves, hate the things he hates. We start to become more and more um, embodied in him. So that's the first thing I want us to see is that we receive a new identity. The second thing from Galatians 2.20 is this. Christ gives us a new purpose. Christ gives us a new purpose. He gives us a new will, if you want to say it that way. And you can use those words kind of interchangeably. Now, this is important because in terms of searching for the will of God and in terms of understanding our purpose on this earth, this is a big question for a lot of us, right? Like, this is probably one of the most asked questions in Western Christianity today. What is God's will for my life? Right? That's a question that we ask all the time. Sometimes we even ask it in small ways. Like, I, I have time to read a book. What book should I read? Um, does God have an opinion on that? Uh, tonight, uh, I want to go out to dinner. Where should we go out to eat? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, you know, after church for lunch, you're going to understand God's will that you need to eat at the Habit or Chipotle. Like, I don't think that's part of something he's going to maybe weigh into. You know, it goes even further. Like, who, like, where should I go to college? What should I study when I'm there? Uh, should I date? Should I get married? Should we have kids? How do I parent? All these questions come up all throughout life. As you get older, as your parents get older, it's like, hey, should I put mom and dad into a, into a home? What, what is God's purpose for my life? What is God's will? And I think it's so relevant because there are so many questions you and I have in terms of our purpose, in terms of what we're supposed to be doing that are simply just not answered in Scripture. There are so many questions that are not answered in Scripture. But here's the good news that I want us to understand is that the good news is this, that God's will, his purpose is not lost. Amen? So that means we don't have to go around and find it, right? Like, like we don't have to play this big cosmic Easter egg hunt of like, where's God's will? Like looking around for it and kind of asking people, have you seen it? It's not this game of hot and cold where it's like, you're getting warm, you're getting warmer, now you're cold. No, it's not like that. Now, here's the thing. I think that culture and this time that we live in would have us believe that God's will is like this, that it's this kind of secretive, mysterious thing out there. I remember one of my favorite movies, Batman Begins, if you remember the Christian Bale one, at the beginning, he has to go and find this flower as he walks up this mountain in Japan or something. And it's like this very, like, mysterious, cool thing. It's like if you find the flower, you're allowed to get into the door. And it's like, wow, okay, all right, I'm going to find this flower. So he does it through snow and ice. And, and I think people kind of see God's will this way, our purpose in life this way, that it's some kind of mystery. I remember about 10 years ago, there was a book that came out called The Secret. You guys remember this book, The Secret? It was by, I think, Rhonda Brines. And um, it, came, it was a very small book. And it sold millions of copies, like millions and millions of copies. And they, like, developed this whole DVD set around it and seminars and conferences. And do you know the secret? 
right? The secret to success in life. And, and they kind of pitched it this way, and it sold millions. And why did it sell so much? Because people have it in their mind that if it's good, if it's worthwhile, then it has to be kind of exclusive and secretive. Now, I want to ask you this. Do you, we as Christians believe this? Do we buy into this a little bit? Or what about this? Listen to this. What if God desires for me to follow his will so much that he lives in me to accomplish it? What if it's not a secret? Christians, what if, what if it's actually something that we're supposed to know? What if it's something that, what if God's purpose for us is actually not a secret? What if it's something that he wants us, he wills for us to understand our purpose on this earth so much that he lives in us to accomplish that? What if this idea of seeking out God's will is more of a pagan idea than it is a Christian one? I think we may be on to something, but that's too abstract, right, that God would live in us to accomplish his will. That's, that's a little hard to swallow, and so what do we do? We come up with other ways to find God's will. So a couple of bad ways that we, we do this in some way, just a quick list for us, all right? Um, a couple of ways that we try and find out God's will. First of all, we go to self-help. We go to bookstores. We read everything we can. We, we think if we can simply just go to the right seminar, meet the right person, talk to the right folks, associate with the right LinkedIn group or something, we're going to be able to find God's purpose for my life. Like, I'm going to be able to get that much further because of that. And that's just, that's a silly notion that we would simply, like, that we can read something and say, oh, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, what does that bring us back to? It brings us back to the law. It brings us back to this moralistic idea that if I can just act differently, behave better, do better, do more, then I can one day find God's will. Another way that we do this is through uh, the random Bible verse method. Now, I won't have you raise your hands to embarrass you to see how many of you have done this before, but I have done the random Bible verse method, and it oftentimes does not work out very well. So if you're unfamiliar with it, you simply take your Bible and you start flipping and you put your finger in the Bible and you read a verse. Psalm 124.5, and the raging waters were roaring around my head. What does that mean, right? Like, does that mean I need to, at all costs, you know, make sure my family and I don't put raging waters in San Dimas? Like, what does that mean for my life? And so, you know, that doesn't make sense. So we do it again, and we try to go through another one, and we find a different verse, and that doesn't make sense either. And so we do it over and over again until you find a verse that kind of makes sense. So, so now, I'm not just saying this because I'm Asian, but our Bible is now a fortune cookie, right? It's a fortune cookie. It's like, what does this mean for We're using our, 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 our Bible as a Ouija board almost. I mean, can, do you realize this? When we, when we use the random Bible verse method, and the problem with it, really, reality is well, the problem with it is that we are stripping God's word from all context. And we have to understand what this whole passage means, what the verse means in terms of the raging waters. And so that's one thing that just doesn't work is this random Bible verse method. Another one is the miraculous, verse, miraculous event method. Right? And so some of us are waiting around, sitting around waiting to, to see this amazing event unfold in front of us. And so well, we're there and we're like, just like, just like Moses had the burning bush, and just like Paul experienced God on the road to Damascus, I'm waiting for my miraculous event. And the problem with that is that God oftentimes, he says it in Scripture, he, he speaks quietly, he speaks in the mundane, he speaks in the everyday. And so that isn't something that I would wait around for. 
The last thing I would throw out is this cast the fleece method. All right? You remember the story of Gideon? And you're like, wait, hold on. That's a, that's a biblical thing. Some, we do that. Well, well, hold on. Listen, here's what I'm saying. We have to, again, understand the context of everything we read. So when we talk about casting the fleece, when Gideon put out this fleece and waited to see if it would retain moisture or not in the morning dew, well, that is a story for Gideon. And the problem with just kind of doing everything you read in Scripture is not everything is meant to be replicated in Scripture. This was something specifically for Gideon to test his faith and for God to show him his will in that manner. So it's important that we don't just do everything we read in the Bible. Otherwise, you know, you, you have a problem at work, and so you start throwing rocks at the tallest guy because that's what David and Goliath did. Like, that's not going to work out for you. And so here's the thing. I, I'd say this. With all these things, God can use any of this. God can use any of this to show us his will. He, he spoke through a donkey one time, right? I mean, so this happens. But I would say this, that I think it's a much more biblical model in terms of our relationship with the Lord, that we would walk in trust with him on a daily basis. That every day we'd wake up and say, God, what do you, what do you want me to do today? And how, how can I be in your will today? That it, we're not waiting for this kind of event, this moment, this thing, this kind of, if I, you know, spin around three times and jump up and down, like, then I'll know God's will. No, that we would be able to trust the Lord on a regular basis, on an everyday basis. And so it's based off of relationship and submission. Finding God's purpose for our life, it's based off of relationship. Um, it is not this linear, our Bibles are not this linear thing that's meant to be read as a checklist, where it's like I do this, this, and this, and then I can go to the next part. Uh, another way to think about this is it's not a, a mall directory. Right, like so, we've been in the mall before. We've seen these big kiosk mall directories where you stand in front of it and you're like, "I want to go here, and I'm over here," and this is how we do it. It's very kind of easy to follow the colors and the shapes and all this stuff. Uh, about a month ago, I was in uh, Minneapolis with some of our pastoral staff at a conference, and it was it was awesome to be there and grew a lot and learned a lot. But the last day we were there, I convinced uh, J.D. Hedema and Shane Marks um, to go to the Mall of America, because I'd never been there before, right? Has anybody been to the Mall of America before? Raise your hands. A couple of you have. Okay, so the Mall of America is a really, really big mall. It's the largest mall in the United States. Um, it's got tons of stores, tons of restaurants. It has an amusement park in the middle of the mall. It's crazy, all right? So I wanted to go and just kind of play tourist for a minute, and so we show up, and my first inclination is that I want to go and, you know, download the app or look at my phone or find the mall directory and kind of just get around and see how to get there. And so I, that's my first kind of thing. And so as, as I do that, J.D. says, you know what, just follow me. Just, let's just walk around. And I remember, oh, yeah, J.D. actually lived in Minneapolis. And so he spent like three, four years there with his wife, kind of doing life on a regular basis there. And so he shows us the fastest way to get from point A to point B. He shows us, like, he's, he's like, hey, you want to take a picture? This is the best place to take a picture because you can see the entire amusement park from the top down. Hey, you want this kind of food? You know, these restaurants are over here. These fast food places are over here. And he, he tells us these insider kind of things about how, hey, dur during the winter when it's zero degrees outside Minneapolis, there are people who actually jog through the mall. And they have, like, a lap. They have this, like, whole setup thing there at the mall. It's crazy. 
And I, I realized that I got way more out of just hanging out with JD and him talking to us about this mall than I would have ever if I'd simply stared at a mall directory. And the problem is, is I think that you and I think that if we just read our Bibles or read some books or, or try and organize our life in a way that makes sense to us, that we will be able to ascertain somehow God's will and purpose for our life when it is based on a relationship. It's based on a relationship with God, God living in us, that he died, that he would live in us to live a new life. It's so important that we understand that. And if I am in step with Christ, that means that I have confidence. That means after 5, 10, 15, 40 years of my life, I know that I am walking in step with the Lord by simply those everyday trusting in him moments. Man, how freeing is this? How freeing is this for a college student, right? If you're in college this morning, I remember being in college and thinking everything depends on this. It depends on how I do this year in this class. It depends on how I kind of, if I choose this major or, you know, graduate with this degree. It all matters right now. It matters so much. And how freeing is it that you realize you don't have to have all this stuff figured out? How freeing is it for somebody who's, you know, midlife and wants to make a career change? And it's like, man, this, my whole family's counting on me right now. And, and yet God says very clearly, hey, you, you died. I live through you now. We do this together. It's a relationship that we have. And this is the beauty of the Christian life. This is the beauty of justification in our life that we don't have to wander around aimlessly any longer. So the question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's purpose for my life? I think we have to rework that question a little bit. Because it's a question that we often think about but I think we have to retweak it just a little bit. It's not so much what is God's will for my life because if I say that, what is God's will for my life, it just makes me the center of the universe, right? It's like that, that God's will will just revolve around me. No, it's not what is God's will for my life, but what is sim- it's simply what is God's will? What is God's will and what do I need to do to get on board with God's will? Because he's the important one. And so I'll do anything God wants me to do because, again, my life is not my own. As I died and I now li- Christ now lives in me to live a new life. And so I just want to encourage us, Foothill Church, listen, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. Get our eyes off of you, put them on Jesus, the, the, the perfecter of our faith. As Colossians talks about, that we put our eyes higher where Christ is and that we would see that when we do that, things work out much better if our eyes are not on ourselves. In short, get over yourself, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not about you. Celebrate Jesus. Don't celebrate you. But don't loathe you either. It's not about you. Last verse, and then we'll wrap up here. Galatians 2, verse 21. He says, in light of all this, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Man, what an interesting way to kind of finish this passage off. Right before chapter 3, verse 1, he calls everybody an idiot. Um, But he says, do not nullify the grace of God. for For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. How do we nullify the grace of God? I think we do it in two ways. I'll just, I'll just end with this. 
you and I are potentially participating in this idea of nullifying God's grace in two distinct ways. In one way, what we do is we say, you know what, I don't need Jesus. I, I don't need Jesus at all. I, I, I haven't missed church in two years. I don't need Jesus. I've, I, I went to a, on a mission trip to Africa. I don't need Jesus. I'm involved in my church. I, I got stickers on my car. I, I, everybody knows that I'm a Christian. I don't need Christ. And as we know, that is a false gospel. It's us relying on our righteousness. It's us relying on the things that we do, the things that we think will please us in a religious way. The other way that we do this and nullify the cross of Christ is flat-out rejection. And there are some people, possibly this morning, here at Baseline or Grand, who don't even have a relationship with Jesus because we have rejected Christ, therefore nullifying the grace of God. And we say, we don't need Jesus. I, I, my life is successful. I make lots of money. I do my own thing. I, I've, I have lots of houses and lots of things and to, to keep me happy. Why would I need Jesus? And so this morning, as we think about our own lives, man, some of us may need to repent from our own self-righteousness, realizing we have put ourselves in a position where we don't think that we even need Jesus any longer. And for others, I would encourage you, invite you to listen to the words of Christ when he calls you to himself. And none of this happens easily. This is difficult. And this is why we ask the Holy Spirit to invade our lives. This is why we ask for God's presence in our life. This is why we pray to all those, those things to that end. So let's do that this morning. Let's bow our heads as we close. God, we thank you for this passage, this, this verse, this verse that maybe many of us have heard many times. And we thank you for the truth of it. God, we thank you that, that we who are Christians have died to our old selves. And we now live a new life through you, through faith, because of your grace to us. But God, I pray, Lord, that in that process, as we seek out how to live our life now, the life that we now live, God, that we would we would continue to rely on you every day, that it wouldn't just be kind of a one-time decision of, oh yeah, I put my faith in Jesus, and now it's a done deal. God, I pray that you would wake us up every morning with a passion to know you on a deeply relational level, because that's what you desire for us. God, I pray for those in this room who are perhaps in these two camps of rejecting and nullifying your son's death on the cross and so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a, just a conviction to fight against self-righteousness. You would give us conviction to see that we, we, we don't need the law any longer. We simply rely on you and your grace. And God, for those who are far from you, I pray that you would call them to yourself this morning, that people would be saved by saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen.